We had a great uh, weekend last weekend. I'm still uh, reeling from uh, our Mother's Day service. We had just such powerful services, and it was such a great weekend. But we took a break from the book of Acts. So we're going to pick back up this weekend where we left off two weeks ago, and we're in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. And remember what's happening here in Acts 4. It's really a carryover of what happened in Acts 3, a miracle. Uh, a guy that was lame was miraculously healed as Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. As a result of that, Peter preached a powerful message, and 5,000 men, not including women and children, were saved. So the church was growing by leaps and bounds. As a result of that miracle, he... Uh, that miracle and what Peter and John were doing was making the religious establishment very uncomfortable. So they brought them to trial and to interrogate them <clears throat> about the miracle that had just been performed. So that's what we're going to, to pick up here in our story here in just uh, a moment. I had a pastor friend uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, shared with me a story of something that recently happened in he and his wife's life, and he, he pastors in this region of the country. And they had the opportunity to go and spend a few days with a very well-known minister. I mean, has a global ministry and is a great leader, a great man of God, doing a great work. And I said, so, wow, that's an awesome experience. What was it like? And they, he said, well, when we left, we were exhausted. And I'm like, well, why? And they said, because all he did was talk about himself. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody that all they do is talk about themselves and you can't wait till the conversation is over and when you leave that conversation, you're like, I'm exhausted. I need to go, you know, I need to go take a nap or something. You know, you know you've been in the presence of someone truly great. You know that you've been in the presence of someone truly great, not because while you are in their presence, they remind you constantly of how great they are, but you know that you're in the presence of someone truly great because when you're in their presence, they remind you about how great you can be through Christ. You see, in the presence of some people, you walk away feeling extinguished, and in the presence of others, you walk away feeling distinguished. There's a difference in feeling extinguished, you know, like your fire was put out, you know, that you walk away feeling deflated, you know, like you've been in the presence of Tom Brady. But anyway, um, <laughs> then... Then there are, there are others that when you walk away from their presence, you feel uplifted. You feel encouraged. You feel important. You know, uh, people really don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. They really don't care how important you are until they know how important they are to you, right? And so when people come into the presence of true greatness, they change. Not because they're reminded of how great that person is, but how great they can be because of Christ. And that's the story of Peter and John. Peter and John in the Bible, here in the book of Acts, they were ordinary men. They were average men. They were blue-collar workers. They were former fishermen. And now they're standing before the most powerful religious people in the world at that time, and they're having to defend how the miracle power of God worked through them to cause a lame man to walk. And so what changed? What changed in the life of Peter and John? These average fishermen, by trade, they became followers of Jesus, and they were in the presence of Jesus for three and a half years, and something changed on the inside of them. Even though they were in the presence of true greatness, because Jesus is the greatest, was the greatest, forever will be, the greatest person that's ever lived, that's ever walked planet Earth. But they became, they discovered their greatness in Christ, not because Christ reminded them constantly of how great he was, and he was great and is great and forever will be great, but he reminded them of who they could be through him and who they could be in him. 
And so after three and a half years in the presence of Jesus, Peter and John and these apostles, they became extraordinary, above average men. The women that were in the life of Jesus became extraordinary, above average women. And these men, they tipped, they, they altered the axis of planet Earth, they changed the world, they changed history. Former fishermen and tax collectors because they had spent time in the presence of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says this. Now when they saw, this is the religious uh, power brokers of that day, interrogating Peter and John about the miracle and about preaching Jesus. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Okay, so the Sanhedrin, 70 of the most powerful religious leaders of that day, surrounding Peter and John, former fishermen, surrounding them, they're in their religious perches and they're looking down their noses, they're looking down their, their religious, sanctimonious, holier-than-thou noses, pontificating in their positions of power, and they're looking down at Peter and John and they say to themselves, these are unlearned and ignorant men. I mean, that's the lowest you can get, is to look at somebody and say, well, they're not like us. They're, they're not as educated as us. They are, they are not formally trained. These are ignorant men. I mean, no, that's an insult, right? So they go like, these are unlearned, ignorant men, and they marveled, and they took knowledge of them. And I want you to read this last part of the verse out loud with me, that they had been with Jesus. Say it again, that they had been with Jesus. One more time, that they had been with Jesus. They marveled. They marveled at Peter and John. They marveled that these were unlearned, uh, 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 ignorant men. How could this power work through them? How could they even be standing before the Sanhedrin uh, testifying of this incredible, notable miracle that's just happened? What made the difference in these men's lives? And they recognized it. These men had been with Jesus. It doesn't say these men had been at church. Now, there's nothing wrong with being in church. I'm, I'm glad you're in church. Look to the person next to you and say, I'm glad you're in church. Go and tell them. But it doesn't say these men had been in church. How many of you can be in church but not be with Jesus? Or you can be in church and be with Jesus. The, the key in life is to find a church that when you go to church, people, when they see you throughout the rest of the day, throughout the rest of the week, they know that you've not just been in church. They know that you have been with Jesus. Amen? <laughs> that you've been with Jesus. I looked up that word, uh, ignorant. It just, you know, uh, these are unlearned and ignorant men. And it's an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word, uh, idiotes, and it means we get our word ignorant or we get our word idiot from this Greek word. <laughs> they, they looked at Peter and John, they go, these men are unlearned, which means they did not graduate from their theological universities or schools. They were not under their training. Uh, they were unlearned and they were ignorant men, meaning they were just common men. They were, they were laymen, okay? They were non-professionals. Um, they were not a part of the sacerdotal order, the commissioned uh, priesthood or Sadducees or Pharisees. They, they looked at them and they said, these guys are basically idiots. I was thinking about that, you know. I mean, who truly are idiots among us today? Uh, I, I don't know, but, but if you were going to nominate uh, your top ten idiots of the year, who would they be? 
Don't tell me. I have some, but I won't tell you because it wouldn't be polite, wouldn't be very pastoral, you know, for me to, to nominate like the top 10 idiots of 2015. But God says there are those who are idiots. In Psalm 14:1, God said, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So the, the, truly, the, the, the truly ignorant people among not us here today, but in our world, are those that deny God's rightful place in their life. But what makes someone truly effective in life, impacting and successful, fruit-bearing? It's that those individuals have been in the presence of Jesus. You see, it's, it's very true. It's not what you know, it's who you know. All you graduates, you know this, right? Yeah, knowledge is important. But knowledge without God is dangerous, right? So you can have knowledge but not wisdom, and God wants to give you not only knowledge but wisdom, and wisdom is the correct application of knowledge, and so we can fill our hearts and minds with knowledge, but if we don't have the wisdom of God, not wisdom that's earthly, sensual, and devilish, but wisdom which is from above, which comes from God, then we truly cannot become the men and women that God's called us to be. So it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know that matters. And these men, these religious men, they, they had knowledge but they had no wisdom, they had knowledge but they had no relationship. And the difference is not just what you know, but who you know. And the key is, do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Right? And knowing him changes everything. And the fact that Peter and John were in the presence of Jesus for three and a half years, it changed them. You know, you can be in the presence of someone, and you can be reminded not of necessarily their greatness, as I said a moment ago, but of how great you can be in Christ. And that's what happened to Peter and John. You see, anytime you come into the presence of somebody, the spirit and the essence of that individual can begin to permeate your life. The spirit and the essence of that person can begin to permeate your life. Um, I remember my mom, she used to, uh, her sheets, whenever I'd go stay at her house, her sheets used to smell like really, really good. They smelled like downy. And I thought, does she put like extra downy in the, in the wash, you know? Why do they come out of the, the cabinet smelling so good? And so I finally asked her and she had a trick. She would take those downy sheets, those, those uh, you know, laundry sheet things, and she would place them between the sheets as she would store them in the cabinet. And then the scent would permeate all that was in the, the cabinet. And, you know, there is an essence that can permeate our entire life when we are in the presence of Jesus, when we spend time in the presence of of Jesus, the spirit and the grace of Jesus begins to permeate every aspect of our life. How many of you know that there are some restaurants you want to avoid, right? There are some restaurants you want, because you know if you come out of that restaurant, you're gonna smell like that restaurant the rest of the day. And if you happen to go to a Mexican food restaurant, I always hope that I'm sitting next to somebody that doesn't order fajitas. Because I know as soon as those come out on that sizzling plate and they set him next to that person, all of the smoke and the smell of his is going to come on me. It's going to get in your hair and if you have a nice jacket on, it's going to get in your jacket and then for the next several weeks people are going to call you the fajita man because you're going to smell just like a fajita and they're going to know where you've been because that scent is going to be on you. What happens when you and I spend time in the presence of God? What happens when we spend time with Jesus the essence and the spirit and the grace of Jesus begins to permeate our life. And get this, the scent of heaven comes upon your life. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, the Apostle Paul said, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved, the aroma of life. To those that are dying spiritually, the aroma of death. 
you have, when you and I spend time with Jesus, when we spend time in God's presence, we have the scent of heaven upon our life. What's the scent upon your life this morning? Just look to your neighbor and say, you smell like Jesus. Go on, tell him you, you smell like Jesus. <laughs> Unless you're new here, don't do that because we want you back next week. <laughs> what, what do you smell like? Have you been in the presence of Jesus? You see, a wife knows when her husband has been with Jesus. Hello. Oh, that, was, that was funny, huh? Cool. Okay. Yeah. And she knows when he's been with the golf clubs on the golf course, right? I mean, a husband knows when his wife has been with Jesus. A boss knows when his employee has been with Jesus. An employee knows when his boss has been with Jesus. Church people know when they have been with Jesus or when they've not been with Jesus. We need to be people that have been with Jesus so that it becomes obvious to others in the world when they look at you and they look at me and they say, what makes them different? And they recognize that you have been with Jesus. Look to your neighbor and say, it looks like you've been with Jesus lately. Go on, tell them, it looks like you've been with Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because the spirit and the essence of another human being can get into you. You know, the funny thing, um, my, my mom, growing up, she, she could uh, recognize when I was spending time with a particular friend that I had. His name was Kenny. And the reason she could tell is I would, my friend Kenny, for whatever reason, he walked like a hunchback. He had walked like this. I guess he thought he was cool. I don't know. But inevitably, unconsciously, I'd hang around him, and he would influence me. And, and I'd start walking like this. And I'd walk in, and my mom goes, you've been spending time with Kenny. I'm like, yeah, how'd you know? She goes, because you're walking like this. And then she could tell by my attitude. How many know, parents, you can tell who your kids have been hanging around with by the attitude and the demeanor that's coming out of their life? Why? Because the spirit and the essence of that person can, can influence them. So write this down. This is a tweetable quote right here. Your associations determine your destinations. Your, who have you been with lately? Whose presence are you spending time in? You see, your associations will determine your destinations. Some people say, Pastor Carl, I wonder what my future is going to be like. I say, I know what your future is going to be like. Really? You know what my future is going to be like? I, I can tell you what your future I, I can I can predict with 100% accuracy what your future is going to be like. How can you do that? Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Whoa. <laughs> show me your friends, and I'll show you your future because your associations determine your destinations. Let's say that together. Your associations determine your destinations. I learned this a long time ago from one of the great men of God that I had the privilege of being under his tutelage and mentorship, Dr. Lester Sumrall, through his books, teaching tapes, and then he came to our former church and spoke on several occasions and had the privilege of sharing a meal with him. He imparted his spirit for, and love for God into my life. And he said this a long time ago. He said, run with the dogs, you'll start howling like the dogs. Run with the pigs, you'll start smelling like the pigs. If you want to soar like an eagle, you can't gobble-gobble all day with a bunch of turkeys. Come on, don't shut me down now, you know. I'm preaching real good now. So the difference in Peter and John's life is the difference in your life and my life. Say it with me. They had been with Jesus. Come on, say it again. They had been 
with Jesus? Can the world recognize, church, that you've been with Jesus? It goes on, verse 14, but since they could not see the man who had, since, but since they could see the man who had been healed, standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves, what should we do with these men? And they asked each other, we can't deny that they've performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it, but to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. How's that going to fly with Peter and John, right? Verse 18, so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. In verse 19, but Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? What a response. What a response. Verse 20, we cannot stop telling about everything we've seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they did not know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. In the very next chapter of Acts 5, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered once again when they were commanded, threatened, and imprisoned, possible death, not to preach anymore in Jesus. They said, we ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. So I, I entitled the message, uh, hashtag obey God. I, I thought I would look up what are the most popular hashtags you know, on, on Instagram, like the top 10 of all time, right? So uh, here are some of the most popular hashtags. Uh, hashtag popular, hashtag instagood, hashtag photo of the day, hashtag instamood, hashtag best of the day, hashtag instadaily, hashtag instacool, hashtag me. You knew that one would be in there, right? One of the most popular hashtags, hashtag me. But I, I didn't find hashtag obey God. And I think we need to start a new trend, right, on social media. I think, I think that the most popular hashtag should be the one that basically Peter and John give us here in Acts chapter 4, and it's, say it with me, hashtag what? Obey God. Hashtag what? Obey God. You know, sometimes obeying God can cost you something, as Peter and John were discovering here. Uh, it could cost you maybe your reputation. It could cost you maybe your life, as it, it is for many Christians today. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, families in our church came up to me last Sunday and handed me this orange uh, wristband. And it says, stop persecuting Christians, uh, stop the persecution of Christians now. And I said, that's awesome. He said, yeah. He said, I, you know, I heard you speak uh, a couple weeks ago and talking about the persecution of Christians and what's happening in our world right now. And I just was inspired to do this. And I said, that's awesome. Thanks. He said, my son and I stepped out in faith and we bought 1,100 of these. And, you know, we're going to sell them for a dollar or two, whatever, and raise money and then, you know, send it to, to help the persecuted church. And I said, that's awesome. I said, yeah, I'll wear that. It's a reminder of what's happening. He said, oh, do you know why I, I made it in orange? I said, no, why? He said, because before ISIS will cut off a Christian's head or set them on fire, they put them in an orange jumpsuit. You see, persecution officially started right here in Acts chapter 4. The persecution of the church, the persecution of Christians officially started right here. It became more severe. Eventually, Peter died. He was, according to church history, hung on a cross upside down. Paul had his head cut off once he arrived at Rome. John was 
banished to the Isle of Patmos that the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation. And they even tried, according to church history, they even tried to boil him in a pot and a vat of boiling oil, but he would not die. He could not die. All of the early followers of Jesus, they met their end by way of persecution. But they all lived by a code, a code of conduct, by conviction, that they would rather obey God than man. Are there times that we must practice civil disobedience? That's an important question for us to explore as Christ followers, especially in the hour in which we find ourselves living, the threats that are clear and present around our world today, and the increasing persecution of Christians even in our own country and potentially what may come our way in the weeks, months, and years to come. Well, the Bible's very clear. The Bible's very clear in several passages of Scripture that we are to be good citizens, we are, to, uh, we are to benefit our country, our nation that we live in. We're to be light and we're to be salt and we're to allow our influence for the greater good of the whole to be felt. So the Bible is very clear in Romans 13, 1 and 2. It says everyone must submit to the governing authorities. Everyone. For all authority ultimately comes from God. For those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. That doesn't mean that God places individual, ind- individual people in positions of power, but the position itself is delegated by God. And all who are in positions of of power will be held accountable by God. Uh, Verse 2, so anyone who rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted. And they will be punished. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, For the Lord's sake, obey every law of your government. Unless man's law violates God's law, we are to obey man's law. But when man's law violates the higher law, which is God's law, we are to disobey man's law in obedience to God's law. For those of the king... Uh, as head of the state, he goes on to say in verse 14, and those of the king's officers, for he has sent them to punish all who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Titus, Paul writing to Titus, he said this, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. And then Jesus said, render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. There is something that is due to Caesar who represents the government or the governing authorities. There's something that we owe to Caesar. But there's something that we also owe to God. And we want to make sure that what we owe to God, we don't give to Caesar. And what we owe to Caesar, we don't give to God. That we give to Caesar what is due Caesar, but we give to God what is due God. So what is the biblical response? Are there times when civil disobedience is in order? For God's people. Absolutely. There are examples in Scripture. The Jewish midwives in Exodus 1 were commanded by Pharaoh to kill every Hebrew male child that was born. The midwives defied, at great personal risk, they defied the order of Pharaoh because they could not commit murder. Moses' parents did not, they hid Moses. They hid Moses. And then they put him in a basket and sent him down the Nile River as opposed to killing Moses, which was the law of the land. Daniel, in chapter 1, he was abducted from the Holy Land. He was abducted from Israel. He was abducted from his, the people that loved and served God and followed the laws of God, and he was taken to the most wicked country, nation at that time, Bab- Babylon. He lived amongst the Babylonians. And so you see, like Daniel, you can live amongst the Babylonians. Maybe you work in a very ungodly environment. Maybe you work or go to a very ungodly university. But you can still be a witness for Christ. 
while you're there and still maintain your convictions. Daniel did it. And there was a time that Daniel had to take a stand on what was right, on his convictions to obey God rather than man. When the king wanted he and his friends to eat meat offered to idols, he said, we can't do that. That would be a violation to the command of God. And the steward said, if you don't, it's off with my head because after several weeks, if you're weaker than the Babylonian students, I'm going to lose my life. And Daniel said, don't worry about it. God will take care of us. Just feed us vegetables. And so Daniel and his friends lived off vegetables, and several weeks later, they were ten times stronger than the Babylonian kids. Why? Because they lived by their convictions, and they decided that they would obey God rather than man. You know the story in Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Um, uh, when, when Nebuchadnezzar built this massive idol, and he wanted everybody to bow to the idol, at the, at the sounding of the music, when the concert started, everybody was to bow to this idol. Everybody in the kingdom bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's idol, Right? except for three Hebrew young men. You know the story? Imagine the scene, thousands and thousands of people all bowing, and all of a sudden you look around the crowd, there are three guys standing up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king said, I'm going to give you a second chance. And if, when the music starts, if you don't bow to my idol, you're going to burn in my furnace. And you know the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Oh, king, our God is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace. But if not... But if not, know this, <laughs> we'd rather burn in your furnace than bow to your idol. They were basically saying, we ought to obey God rather than man. And then you know what happened? They threw him in the fiery furnace. The fourth man showed up who looked like unto the Son of God. And the only thing that burned off of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the ropes that held them bound. And when they came out of the furnace, when they came out of the furnace, they didn't even smell like fajitas. Amen. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, in closing, there are four responses to rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering to God what is God. There are four responses. And I pray that God gives us as a church discernment. I pray he gives all churches in our country discernment. I pray he gives all Christians discernment. And I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said. He said this, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. May God give us a spirit of discernment. So what are the four responses? The first one is the separationist response, where God's authority is accepted only and Caesar's is rejected, and so people run off to the hills to live as hermits or off to a monastery. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what the apostles did. Uh, we're not to run and hide. We are to engage culture. Uh, Jesus went to major cities, and his disciples went to major cities and preached the good news. Paul ultimately was destined to go to Rome and proclaim Christ before Caesar in Rome. So we do not practice a separationist gospel. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're in the world, but we don't want the world in us. We are light, we are salt, and we are to let our light shine. We are to influence for the greater good of our country. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he didn't delegitimize Pilate's authority. He put it in proper perspective. Pilate said, don't you know I have power to kill you? And she said, you don't have any power. The only power you have is the power that my father has granted to you and given to you. And you'll be held, basically he's saying, you're going to be held accountable for that. There are people in positions of power, and ultimately that authority does come from God, as in Romans 13, 1 and 2 says. But whatever position of authority that somebody may have in your life or over your life or you and I may have in life, we will all one day be held accountable for that authority, how we used it or how we misused it. 
But the response of the church is not to separate ourselves. We are to mix in, but never blend in with the world. Uh, number, the second response is a secular response, where God's authority is rejected and Caesar's authority is accepted. After all, it's the law of the land, so I guess it's right. No, just because it's the law of the land doesn't mean it's right. If man's law violates God's law, we obey God's law and disobey man's law. There are whole church denominations right now that are apostatizing, which is a fancy word which means backsliding, which means falling away. Whole churches that are departing from the teaching of Scripture uh, because of, of, of wanting to um, appease the, the secular mindset that is becoming so predominant in our society today. We are to render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's, and we're only to render to Caesar what's Caesar's unless Caesar wants what only belongs to God. Are you following me? So we are to avoid the secular response. Then there is the scared response, which is the coward's response, which means we reject God's authority and we completely accept Caesar's authority and we do what's convenient, not what's right. Pilate was scared of the crowd. He wanted to please the crowd, so he did what was convenient but not what was right when he turned an innocent man over to be crucified. And Pilate washed his hands, symbolically saying, I wash my hands from the sin of this innocent man. But you can't do that, Pilate. You're guilty. You're, you're guilty. And, and according to history, they tell us that, that Pilate uh, had an obsessive-compulsive disorder of constantly washing his hands because out of fear he did what was convenient, not what was right, because he was scared of the crowd. And he went to his grave constantly washing his hands, trying to get the blood of an innocent man off of his hands. And then the final response is the scriptural response. It's the fourth response. We give to God what is duly and rightfully God's. We give to Caesar what is due Caesar, but God is in the supreme role. God is in the supreme role. The state has authority, but it's only under God, granted by God. And then we, of all nations that have ever existed, listen to me, Trinity, we of all nations that have ever existed, we get to choose our leaders. No longer do we live under a theocracy where God ruled the children of Israel in the Old Testament. One day we'll get back to that. We don't live under a monarchy. We're going to be celebrating the 4th of July. That's, the, that's, that's our birthday as a nation. That's when we said we no longer want to be under the king in England. We no longer want to be ruled by a monarchy. We want to be ruled by God. And we said, let us have our freedom. And England said no. And we said then we'll go to war. And that was the Revolutionary War. And so we know freedom comes at a cost, but we have a democracy now, not a monarchy, and we get to select and choose our leaders. And America, you've been doing a really bad job lately. We have the right to choose good, God-fearing men and women and put them into office, local, state, and federal. And if we don't turn the ship, it's going to sink. But there's hope for America if the church will once again start being the church and start spending time with Jesus and live under the authority and the headship of Jesus. And then we will become the witnesses for Christ that can bring revival to our nation and the world once again. God, send revival.
Now listen, the scriptural response is God is the supreme ultimate authority and we respect that. But because we know God's the ultimate authority and he delegates authority, we respect the authorities that are in our lives. A church has, the elders of a church have spiritual authority as mandated in scripture. Parents have authority from God. All in positions of authority will be held accountable for how they use that authority. Husbands have authority in their homes to bless, to love, to serve, to defend, to protect. But according to the Bible, I know it's not popular, but according to the Bible, the husband is the head of the, of the house. He has spiritual headship. He's to be the spiritual leader in that home. And I know many husbands are AWOL, you know, absent without leave. They're not showing up and being the spiritual leaders. And so women, moms, mothers have to step it up and they have to come in and, and fill the void. And by God's grace, under the authority of Christ, he can help do that. But men, it's time for us to assert our leadership to help love and serve. As, as Christ loved the church, we are to love our wives. As Christ served the church, we are to serve our families. And how did Christ love the church? He put the, the needs of the church before his own needs. That's what a real leader does. A leader doesn't come to be served, but a leader comes to serve. And that's the example that we're to follow, the example of Jesus. Bosses have authority. Police have authority. And God is a God of order. He wants everything to be done decently and in order. And so authority is good. The absence of authority is anarchy. And so the devil is the greatest anarchist that's ever lived on planet Earth. And he comes to bring division in homes, in churches, in, in, in communities, in cities, in nations. Because the house divided against itself cannot stand. And so we're to honor and respect authority. We're to support authority in those in positions of authority. And you only have authority to the extent that you're under authority. You only have authority to the extent that you are under authority. There's a king in the Old Testament, Saul. He lost his position of power and influence. Why? Because he abused it. Why? Because Samuel said, go fight the Amalekites and I want you to kill Agag, but he didn't. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 15. And so he brings Agag, Agag the king back, and, and all the possessions and, and some of the animals, and he was supposed to kill every, everything and everyone, right? Uh, it was God's just punishment for their evil deeds, God's judgment. And uh, Saul, Saul said, Samuel said to Saul, Saul, what happened? He goes, oh, well, the people, the people, the people wanted the best of this. And he said, you disobeyed God. He goes, oh, no, I, I obeyed. I, just in this area, I disobeyed. He said, no. He said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is that of idolatry. And I think we have the scripture for that, guys. Please put it up. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Did you get that? And stubbornness is that of idolatry. You only have authority to the extent that you're under authority. Are you obeying God today? Are you spending time with Jesus? And if you're under authority, you will have authority. And Jesus said, all power has been given unto me, both in heaven and in earth. Now go ye in all the world and preach the gospel. And these signs will follow them that believe in my name. You'll cast out devils. In my name, you'll speak with new tongues. In my name, you'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, he said, don't rejoice that demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he said, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy and you shall trample on serpents and scorpions 
scorpions and under all, over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by in any means harm you. And wherever God sends you to the four corners of the earth, you go not in your own name, but you go in the most glorious, powerful name of all, the name of Jesus. And in that name, there's power to save, to heal, to deliver, and to see the power of God flow through our lives to touch a world for Christ. But it only happens, the authority that we have in Christ only happens to the extent that we are under godly authority in our lives. Now listen, we're to always be submissive to the authorities, but we're not always to be obedient to the authorities. If, an, if, a, an, if a lesser authority tries to usurp a higher authority, if a parent tells you, come on, son, you know, let's get drunk, smoke dope, get high, and go do wild stuff together, like, Dad, I love you, and I respect you, but I can't do that. Well, what do you mean? Because I love Jesus, Dad. I can't do that anymore, right? You know, if, if a boss says, I want you to cheat just a little bit right here, just you say, I, I respect you, and I honor you, and I honor your position, and you're my boss, and I love working here, I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? I can't do that. I, I have to obey God rather than man. Hello, are you following me? If the government says, I want, it's okay to do this now, it's, we want you to do this, you say, no, 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 that's not okay with God. It's not okay with the commandments of God. And, 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 and well, you need to obey us. And we're like, no, 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 no. We, we respect you. We honor your position under God but we ought to obey God rather than man. And when we start doing that, church, we're going to see revival in our land. Come on, can we give it up to the Lord one more time? Praise God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you right now. And we simply ask God, what would you have us do with the message today? Holy Spirit, thank you for speaking into the hearts of men and women, personalizing this message in each of our hearts to know what we ought to do, how we ought to respond in faith Lord, we want to be under your authority, and we want to obey you, God. Help us to obey you, to discern, not between right and wrong, but between almost right. If heads bowed and eyes closed, we're here today. You don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. You can know his love, grace, and forgiveness. Just pray this prayer out loud with the rest of it. Say it with your own mouth, mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life, be my Lord, and be my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?